1: Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Omar Sekar, who is the author of the new book, The Lost Arabs, a book of poetry published by the University of Queensland Press. Good morning, Omar.
0: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: It's nice to see you here in Melbourne. Now, you normally live in Sydney, don't you?
0: I do, but I lived here for uh, almost two years, Mm -hmm. Um, a couple of years ago. And, I mean, you can see there are some poems that are based in Melbourne and that I wrote here. So
1: Great. And um, and you're now enrolled in a PhD at uh, University of Western Sydney, is that right? That's right. In what area?
0: I am at the Writing and Research Centre there studying uh, Arab Australian literature.
1: That must be a very big subject.
0: I, yes and no. I mean, there really hasn't been that much work done on it. It's... Uh, pretty ripe, I think, in, in the sense that, yeah, there's uh, plenty of space and um, plenty of ideas that you can work with there.
1: Great. Okay, now the new book, how long did it take you to put it together?
0: I started writing it in 2015, late 2015, um, actually before my first book came out, which I had finished as well um, by that point.
1: And what was your first book?
0: These Wild Houses uh yeah which was published in 2017 so you can see the the length of time it takes for a book to actually enter the world but i started writing the lost arabs late 2015 and i would have i finished it last year late last year i guess um and there was still kind of copy edits and back and forth with the publisher then um even until early this year so
1: Great, and tell me about your writing process. Um, do you uh, have a like a regular schedule of writing, or do you just write spontaneously every now and then?
0: I, I guess I, I write spontaneously, but like regularly. Regularly, <laughs> I'm regularly spontaneous. I can, <laughs> I'm kind of trained in uh, recognizing the moment when. The writing wants to happen, and I seize that opportunity wherever I am. I don't have like a nine to five schedule at my writing desk, but I do think it's important to write regularly.
1: And tell me, um, who are your main influences in terms of your form? Because you have quite a quite a free form. It's not a. Uh, it, it has a narrative base, but it's free flowing. It's what. Who have you looked to for inspiration?
0: I don't know if I necessarily looked. To them for inspiration, but I remember when I first started writing the, this particular kind of poem, and I was I was in New York at the time, and I went to a reading that featured Tracy K. Smith, Terrence Hayes, Joy Graham, and Philip Levine, the late Philip Levine. He passed away a couple months after that, actually, and I remember just seeing him and hearing him and thinking, "There's something to this man. There's something to this work." and going to look for it after that reading and seeing in his work a much more advanced version of kind of like what I had just begun to do, and that kind of gave me the confidence to continue in it. I love the long columns of text. I love the aesthetic certainty it seems to provide and the kind of, and the way it almost resists being read uh, as, as, a, as poetry. You really have to be open to it. The moments where it suddenly lifts and opens, I found that in his work, and it's something that I I try to, I try to do in mine. Other poets I, I admire deeply and who have marked me include like Hayan Chaverra, Kazim Ali, huge, huge for me. Jericho Brown, I think, is amazing. Is a light that I I look to still. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, would you like to read a poem?
0: Of course, yes. I will start with Fridays in the Park, or How to Make a Boy Holy. And I can't help but notice his hips first, bum bag slung low, as the train doors open at Roxburgh Park. And I take in the trackies, his shadowed jaw, the slabs of concrete arcing over him. And as Arab boys are timeless, or else stuck in time, I breathe easier in their paws, their familiar, inescapable heat. And later I spot him in the supermarket and know he knows I'm watching the way a shepherd tends his flock, or the way the ocean shivers when the moon slides onto its back. And there is no significant body of water in the suburbs, nothing to drown in, yet we drown anyway. And I take him in the long grass of the park. I chase him in the weeds, knees wet with mud, the night buzzing with the deaths of mosquitoes. The wild silence after, mouths heavy with musk, is complete and even the birds are mute with love in their nests. There is no song except our huffed breaths, the shuffle of grass bending beneath us, tickling skin, the whole world an animal gone quiet. I asked my auntie about the supernatural hush I felt, and she said, The animals stand still in holy awe. They know the day of judgment will fall on a Friday. And this is why neither of us made a sound. Why his fingers bruised my lips to crush the gasping as one of us disappeared into the other. Why the park bristled with jungle knowing, the kind with teeth. Why it felt like the end of the world and the beginning. Oh, the beginning of another.
1: Fantastic. It's um amazingly evocative. you really take us there with you. Um, yes, thank you. yeah. And um, have you found um, that's uh, uh, have you found there's been any difficulty in having um, sort of romantic poetry that's um, <laughs> you know in the sort of has a gay theme?
0: Uh, do, do, from the <laughs> point of view of your family? Or? From my family. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. No, uh, they don't really read my work. A lot of them don't know that I'm a poet or that I have books. You know, they've always known that I am, I'm a big geek and that I love reading and that I kind of want to be a writer, but they don't know that I succeeded at it because they themselves don't really read books. So it's, it's difficult for me in the sense that as much as I've always kind of been – out to the the public, so to speak I've always known that, and at any moment they could find out and see it uh and so I just kind of have always been in this state of waiting for the explosion right okay. um because for various reasons, and uh I've not wanted to kind of blow up the relationships that I have with um Particular members of my family who uh, I need in my life and they yeah. need me in their lives. Um, you know, it's it's not as easy when you're uh, LGBTQ in, in um, poor or working class families, you know, where resources are so important and your family is everything. So... Yeah, but so far I've, uh, I've managed to keep these two things separate and, and right and hope that I can connect with the broader community of, of queer Muslims and Arabs and uh, people of color, people from these kinds of communities and classes and hope that in putting down my, my roadmap to survival that they will find something that helps them.
1: Beautiful. Fantastic. Yes, well, I'm, I'm sure you have achieved that. So um, let's go to another poem. Which one would you like to read? I was thinking Self-Portrait as Poetry Defending Itself is a, a nice poem. Okay.
0: Self-Portrait as Poetry Defending Itself. The birds tell me the nest is crucial but can't hold all of us. Stay on the wind as long as it will carry you and find a home. Build it from everything a tree has let go. My auntie tells me forgetting has a survival value by saying nothing at all. This is only what I tell myself with her mouth. In Arabic, the word for mercy and forgiveness is the same. Some birds use lit sticks to fan the flames of a bushfire and feast on what escapes. Those who live tell me there is no such thing as escape. That once you've been burned, everything resembles a flame. Who in this story deserves mercy? And at what cost? Should the bird go hungry, the tree unburned, the air untasked with speeding on death, or me, the fool at the end of it all, trying to make sense of suffering? This is only a replica. The pain came and went. And here I am invoking it again, a nest I recreate to burn over and over until I learn I cannot be saved or forgiven for what I lived through. I keep looking to the world for a salvation it has never known. Keep winging toward a word like water, a mirror, a mover, a matter, a mother, a word closer to but not as smothering as solace. I never want to arrive at a sweetened language or to speak the unfindable word. My sole desire is to hold it between my teeth and to be held.
1: Wonderful. It's such an interesting idea. There, Those who live tell me there is no such thing as escape, that once you've been burned, everything resembles a flame. What was your inspiration there?
0: Hmm. Um trauma. Right. You know, I think um I've the communities I come from and the, the my family and my chosen family, um, are just packed with traumatized people. Uh and I've seen it play out where you know, they're they're unable to Trust fully another person or to love fully another person and I was trying to figure out why I was trying to figure out what's stopping us um and I very much think it's this thing of I've been hurt uh so deeply um that I can only recognize things as a as a threat as another hurt um to be, so yeah, that's where that that's kind of where that line came from. But also, I've always I've always been fascinated by that particular uh, strategy that birds have. I was reading this article about these birds in like northern territory or something uh, that have this particular strategy of picking up these bird sticks and literally making uh, a fire. Yeah. yeah, it's actually make, you know, one
1: of the few instances of. Um, I mean, I think it's the only instance where birds use fire in the world yeah. and um, like deliberately as a tool.
0: It's so clever and horrifying. beautiful analogy, yes. <laughs> yeah, mm. great.
1: Um, and I noticed the book was dedicated to Candy Royale, who mm. I vaguely also knew through the Melbourne spoken word scene.
0: Yes, it, it is. Um, I knew Candy she was a queer Arab writer and poet and musician and just all around amazing beautiful person and so of course I of course I knew her and of course she knew me and I was so excited when she got her book deal you know it was just what she had been working for and toward for so long and then this idea that that uh, I would be able to to like tour with her, that we would be able to take out books on the on the road, and we'd be able to do shows together, and and it would it was like a you know a culmination of of what I've been trying to do with my work, right, which is to inspire queer Arabs and queer Muslims. Um, she wasn't Muslim, but uh, queer queer Arabs for sure um, to to be in this space, right, to create literature and and Then she passed away uh, suddenly. Yeah, so it just seemed natural to me that I would dedicate the book to her. Yes. And be able to still carry her with me.
1: Mm. She was a great uh, performer, a great poet. She was. Yeah. Yeah, she was really good. Okay, we might just go to a break and listen to some music. Was the track Eastern Love from the CD Letters from Iraq, which is a fusion record combining Rahim Al Hajj on Oud with a string quartet with Iraqi American musicians. Today, uh, you're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word program. My name is Di Cousins, and I'm talking to Omar Sekha, who is the author of The Lost Arabs, a book of poetry. And Omar, tell me, um, what would you like to read next?
0: Well, just before we started recording, you mentioned uh, we were talking about marriage equality and the plebiscite. So I thought that I would read a poem that I wrote uh, at that time, just after uh, there had been skywriting—people p- writing "no" or "vote no" in the sky—and I wrote this poem. It's called "Blues." Listen, countless days I've looked at heaven and imagined the cupped hand of it closed. I have made braille of the stars and divined a message there for the reviled. I whispered, no, not for you. I have seen the moon as scalpel, as wet white blade, as glaring, as waiting hole to be plunged into, as drop purling on the tip. As well of wonder as coin to pay for my eventual passage into after. I have made it my enemy over and over. I don't know how often I held blue heaven, made of it a furnace. Such hate I've sketched all on my own into the willing curve of world. And still, every night, the loving dark sweeps in and still. Every morning delights again or weeps in woolen bunches giving life to life. This should not surprise you. Everywhere the earth wallows beneath the weight of all that men imagine of it. All that we graffiti the bright mirror with. And everywhere the wind laughs at how easy it is to wipe our cruelties away. Now... I just want you to know my loves. I opened my mouth and swallowed the sky, not because a man scrawled rejection on it as men have done since forever began, but because it was beautiful. And I wanted to taste every flavor of blue, every cloud.
1: Such a beautiful image, you know, to taste the sky and every flavor of blue.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) But also, I mean, to to, to taste what is forbidden.
1: Yes. Mm. And we were reflecting that um, while it's sometimes said that specific communities are very conservative, perhaps the overall most communities in Australia are pretty conservative.
0: Um. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true that um, the country is broadly more conservative than um, we would perhaps like to to think, but also on this particular issue, you know, the majority of Australians, for a very long time, polls have shown support supported marriage equality, but the plebiscite was, to my mind, purely a chance to. Demonize us. It was always going to be ugly, and it was really, truly awful. You know, I had a a sister at the time who was like campaigning amongst our family and social networks, really, to for people to vote no. Wow. um, Because it was an invitation to attack, to go on the attack. It was an invitation of like every horrible thought you've had every um toward lgbtq people like you can air it now because wow. you have a national mandate to air it now mm. and there have since been you know reports that the mental health of lgbtq people after the plebiscite even though the result was positive was significantly worse Um, You know, the community was in real distress for a long time afterwards.
1: You'd taken a battering. Yeah. Yes, well, people conflate freedom of speech with hate speech and uh, the right to vilify, and freedom of speech is not about the right to vilify. It's not about hate speech. It's about holding the powerful to account. That's the freedom of speech that actually matters.
0: I agree. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah.
1: And, um, yes, so anyway, it's um, hopefully through poetry we can um, express another vision of the world and also hold the powerful to account on occasions. Mm. What would you like to read next? I like factoids. You like
0: factoids. All right, well, let's go with factoids. My mother sits in a stone house and she burns. Her father brought his family here to escape history. When she was young, one of nine, he beat them with his father's hands. Later, high on heroin, he became a midnight salesman, selling their jewels and mattresses. I have no way to verify this. My grandparents are both home in the mud. A factoid can be a falsehood or a trivial truth. It is a whole language allows to have two spirits. My mother sits in a stone house and she burns. Sometimes she is the stone, sometimes the flame. She does not scream. She is a beacon, I record, to use her light as a cudgel to purple this page. I wanted to be an artist once. She said he wouldn't let me. Her first husband beat her. He was high on heroin. He hit her at home. Cracked her skull with a pistol. Now she forgets her name at least once a day. He visited her in the hospital as she lay recovering. He beat her in that bed. I write everything down. My mother sits in a stone house and she burns. The house is a village in Lebanon. The house is in Villawood. There are photos of my mother before all this. Everyone agrees. She used to be beautiful. I see her burning her face and nose and lips curling up into black paper as she does the dishes and goes to work and orders takeaway dinner. There is nothing more beautiful than survival, but I have no one to tell this to. Everyone agrees. The present is an ugliness to be ignored. My mother is not alone in her stone, her fiery wedding dress. Other daughters go up next to her, Little infernos, they speak cinder and ash, tongues, a brand that see language into body. They tell me family has checkpoints vicious as any country, and not everyone makes it across, or if they do, they lose their names in a calligraphy ablaze. I wish I had asked how to choose between a fist at home and the border, between bruise and bewilderment or. How to live in a place that is both safe and wound. Flame and stone. Every word has two spirits, at least. My mother survived, and she did not. She can't keep her dreams in. They pour out the hole in her head. A gun left, a man left, life left. This poem left open. My mother sits in the stone house I put her in and burns. She could be so much more I could tell you of the diamond baked into her tooth How she made her smile a gem worth weighing I could say she never arrived from Lebanon That my grandfather let history burn his body in Tripoli and saved us That she drives trucks, knows how to make gelato And is always dreaming up new inventions That her dogs make her squeal with joy Inside my stone house, these things seem trivial or false, But I tell you they are true.:
1: It's extraordinary journey in that uh, poem. You take us so many places, and uh, it's uh, autobiographical.
0: It is. A lot of my work is autobiographical in the sense that it has some relationship to my life or to the world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all of my work is uh, factual. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's a lot of what that poem is is, is about. And a lot of what I'm exploring in this book um, is, is the way uh, what you hear at home is the way family gossip becomes gospel and also what my responsibilities are in telling the stories that i've heard at home and kind of taking myself to task for for not giving people the uh, fuller spectrum of my mother's life and her complexities but then also you know the book is the book is about legacies of violence that's really what I'm I'm looking at it's the legacies of state violence it's family fleeing from civil war in Lebanon uh, coming here the the legacy of my grandfather having gone to jail uh, you know having been involved in in drugs uh, the, the and having been so violent um, to his kids and to my mom that violence and the violence of other men that impacted her and shaped her into who she was and how that that then was carried through and onto my body and the violences she perpetrated against me and uh my siblings because she just had the the right to do it. You know. It's a it's a thing and uh I don't know if it's an Arab thing, if it's a Muslim thing. It's just this I I I brought you into this world and I can do whatever the hell I want to you, and I can take you out of it if I want right. as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. it's pretty so tough. It's like, uh, so there's so much going on there, but, mm. yeah, I try to lay it all bare as much as I can.
1: Yes. Well, you've taken us with you in just two pages um, into a very complex, multi-layered relationship and history, and um, thank you for that. I think we're running out of time. Okay. So... <laughs> We'll have to end it there.
0: That's all right. I think it's a good place to end.
1: Great. Okay, so um, this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Program and I've been talking to Omar Sekar um, about his new book of poetry, The Lost Arabs, and it's published by the University of Queensland Press and my name is Di Cousins. Thank you, Omar.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Great to see you.